Let's pray. Father, you've told us that the unfolding of your word brings light and gives understanding to the simple. And so we come to you in our simplicity and ask that you would light up our darkness and make us wise. In Jesus' name, amen. You grow up, you work for half a century, you get a golden handshake, you rest a couple of years, and then you're dead. So said David Brent of the sitcom The Office. Sometimes life is going to hit you in the head with a brick. The only thing that kept me going is that I loved what I did. You've got to find what you love. Your work will fill a large part of your life. The only way to do great work is to love what you do. If you haven't found it yet, keep looking. Don't settle. Steve Jobs at the Stanford graduation ceremony, Steve Jobs of Apple. You've got to follow your dream, Richard Branson. Do your own thing, follow your own voice. The graffiti written on the desk in front of me, three rows from the back at which I just sat down. (laughs) The modern mantra of the 21st century middle class that you should be true to yourself, follow your passion, that your future is limitless is complete garbage. David Brooks, New York Times. So who is right? Is Jobs right? Find what you love and do it. Is Branson right? Follow your dream. Is David Brent right? You rest a couple of years, then you're dead. Is the art student right? Do your own thing, follow your own voice. Or is Brooks right? All of that is garbage advice. What I want to do is to explore this evening what God has to say about work. And I want to suggest to you that you will find it profoundly realistic that, as always, God's word makes sense of our world, his world. It is also deeply liberating and utterly attainable. So you might say this evening, we want, I want us to achieve our potential at work. I want us to do great work that will stand forever. Three headings. Work is good. Work is grim. Work should be governed by the gospel. First, work is good. We were made to work. And under this heading, three subpoints: the dignity, the responsibility, and the necessity of work. You've been given a handout. I suggest you take notes, and you have a pen, or you may do it on whatever virtual means you have in front of you. Dignity. Work is good. There's a dignity to it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So God not only dignifies work by commissioning Adam and Eve, God himself is a worker. We're made in his image. So God works. He works to create and he works continuously as he sustains his creation. God doesn't cease work ever. God works on the Sabbath. So says Jesus, my father is working to this day and I too am working. Furthermore, Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, he worked and he worked with his hands. He happened to be a carpenter and I suspect he was rather good at it. 
And then the apostle Paul was a worker. He worked with his hands. And he did that very demeaning work of tanning. That explains why we find such innate joy and pleasure in work. And actually not to have work is such a blight. I'm a farm boy, as you just heard. I love working with my hands. I'm not particularly good at it anymore. But we go down to my parents' farm quite regularly, and my elder do- eldest child, ador- my daughter, always says there are only three topics of conversation when we're on holiday on the farm. What Daddy is currently building, what Daddy plans to build, and look at what Daddy has built. Dignity. Responsibility. Look at verse 28. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. So here, yes, creation is entrusted to Adam and Eve and authority is delegated. God could quite easily have created the universe with all the cities in place and all the farms and fields in place and all the boats and fishing fleets in place. But he gave us a responsibility to fill the earth and subdue it and to tend to it. And we see this carry through into the New Testament. So we have a responsibility to to our family and those dependent upon us. 1 Timothy 5. We have a responsibility more widely to our neighbors Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Responsibility. And a responsibility to work and care for this creation wisely. Now, in classic biblical thinking, over the years, people have uh, called this the love of neighbor. The Bible never actually uses that language. I rather like to prefer to speak about the responsibility that God has given us. So the plumber, the waste disposal person, the shop checkout assistant, the banker, the lawyer, the teacher, a responsibility that God has given. Necessity, 1C. Look at verse 29. Sorry, 1C is a heading. It's not a new word I've just made up. Point 1, subheading C. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He says the same in verse 30. So then, there is a necessity to work. Back in the 1980s in England, there were a number of people from Bible teaching backgrounds with very sentimental and unbiblical views about work. And one of our Australian friends, we owe a huge amount to the Australians over in England. One of our Australian friends came to the church I was attending at the time and said, why do you work? You work to fade your face, to feed your face, (laughs) to have something to eat is what he meant. People objected to that and there was some kickback. What about the dignity to work? What about the responsibility of work? But actually, here in Genesis, I've given to you for food. If you don't work, well, listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We urge you, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, to aspire to live quietly, 
to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands so that you may be dependent upon no one. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wouldn't the Chancellor of the Exchequer be pleased about that if it was enforced in your economy? Work then is good. There is a dignity, a responsibility and a necessity to work. Now, after our main point with its three subheadings, I have two things for us to consider. No snobbery about work. No super spirituality for the Christian about work. Snobbery. If work is good, it is dignified, responsible, necessary. All work, with the exception of one or two occupations such as prostitution or money laundering or something like that, or loan sharks, is good. This needs to put an end in our thinking, and particularly, may I say, to many of you university students and graduates, of different classes of work. Are you a snob at work? In the first century, to work with your hands was considered to be low-class, menial, and demeaning. Read Homer. The goal of humanity is to escape working with our hands in Homer's writing, the Greek philosopher, and to become part of the thinking class. We have ideas and shape society. This is far superior. You read it, you'll find it. In fact, that teaching lies behind much of the ugly caste system that you find in Hinduism, low caste, high caste. Equally possible, though, I fear, to go to many middle class university uni churches and discover that in our age we have developed a similarly grotesque snobbery. Absolutely foreign to the Christian faith. (laughs) Imagine the shame of the lawyer who calls himself a Christian but somehow thinks they're superior to the garbage collector. Imagine the, the, e, the ugly unpleasantness of a doctor who somehow thinks they do more good for humanity than the plumber. Imagine how unpleasant it would be for a Christian town plan, planner to think that they were better for society than an agricultural laborer. Oh, you snob. You see, if work is good, all work is good, and neither one nor another is inherently superior, and there's nothing more special about being a surgeon in Auckland City Hospital or a banker or a lawyer in the CBD or a concert pianist than a garbage collector or a sewage worker. In fact, might I suggest just a moment's thought, is not the garbage worker and the sewage sewage, uh, worker of slightly more importance to society than the doctor, the banker, the lawyer. Interesting. No garbage refuse collection for six months in Auckland? No sewage work for six months? There are maybe one or two parents here, of course, as we consider our children and the particular jobs. There are many, as you think about it, are you a snob actually? The best way to discover whether you're a snob at work is to work out, are you prepared to do any job whatsoever? Or do you consider working with your hands? Because I've got a university degree. (laughs) 
How ugly. So if all work is good and we're not to be snobbish, nor should we be super spiritual, this is a way that you will discover that Western so-called evangelical Christians bring in through the back door the teaching of Richard Branson and, and Steve Jobs. What we do is to suggest through the mishandling of the Bible's teaching on calling that some of us have a special vocation. But when you look at the Bible, the word calling is only ever used in the New Testament of, for ordinary Christians, being called to be Christian and godly. It's never used of a particular job for a particular person. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the only place of the 41 references to calling of this sort in the New Testament where calling is used to do with work, but it's not used for a specific person and a specific job. It's used for the, the general issue of slavery. But you will find that some so-called evangelical Christians take this understanding of vocation and calling and bring in through the back door, oh, Johnny's got a special vocation to be a lawyer and end up teaching exactly the same as Richard Branson and Steve Jobs. Here's an exercise for those of you who are currently at work to do tomorrow morning. The alarm goes off at 5.45. If you're a student, yes, I'm afraid that's what happens. I'm sorry about that. No wonder some of you try and stay students for the whole of your life, but that is what happens. 5.45, my alarm goes off. Time to get up. I leap from my bed with joy and enthusiasm. No, I don't. But anyway, there we are. And now, as you do so, work is good. It's a dignified thing to work. There's a responsibility to work. God's made me to work. It's necessary that I work. Thank you, Lord. And if you're currently out of work, then may I encourage you to find in your lack of routine and so forth something that you can do, anything that you can do that would be useful. And if you can't think of anything, go and ask Rowan and he'll give you a really good thing to be doing so that you can engage in work. Good. Point two, work is grim. God will spoil your work. The problem about talking about work from Genesis and in creation is that Genesis 1 and 2 were never intended by the author to be considered on their own. You can ask me about this in questions, but the way Genesis is divided up is by this phrase, these are the generations of. The first phrase comes in Genesis 2 verse 4. The next, these are the generations of, comes in Genesis 5 verse 1. If you've got a Bible in front of you, turn to Genesis 2 4. Genesis 2 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, here are, and I'm sorry to talk about this in New Zealand, here are the tectonic plates of the universe. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. If you want to understand the universe, here are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2 through to Genesis 4 works like a giant sandwich or a Big Mac. The meat, the author, is highly sophisticated, and this sophisticated literary genius has placed the meat right in the middle. What is the meat? The fall of Adam and Eve, their rebellion against God, with God's subsequent judgment. So for me to rip 
work out of Genesis 2 to give a talk on work without thinking about our rebellion against God and the subsequent judgment of God would be to run completely against the way the word of God is intended to be understood by God himself, do you see? So now, let's look at the second reading where we will discover the pain of work, 2a, the frustration of work, 2b, and the futility of work, 2c. 2a, the pain. Genesis 3:17. To Adam, God said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The pain of work. In pain you shall eat of it. By the sweat of your face. I was preparing to speak on this subject a couple of years back and staying in our house, one of the friends of uh, my kids, on his gap year, having finished school, and he got a part-time job in a local assembly line. He was assembling radiators. You probably don't need radiators here, but he was assembling radiator um, uh, thermostats. He went to work. He worked for two hours, 10-minute break. He worked for two hours, half-hour break. He worked for an hour and a half, 10-minute break. He worked for an hour and a half. He went home. He told me that working alongside him were men and women who'd been doing this job for the last 30 years, every day. On a board in front of him was a marker showing how many he'd assembled in the last 60 minutes. His target, I think, was either five or 10. I can't remember. If he missed his target the number came in red. If he hit his target, the number came in black. Day after day after. It's very difficult assembling a radiator thermostat. Day after day after day. By the sweat of your brow. I quite often go to Bangladesh to visit our mission partners in Bangladesh. Bangladesh, you will know, is a floodplain. They have no gravel. Why don't they import gravel? Labor is cheap. They make bricks out of the silt. There are kilns everywhere. How do they break the bricks into gravel? Women sit beside the road with a pile of bricks on one side, a baby strapped to them, an anvil, a hammer, and in the midday sun, they break the bricks into gravel. Pile of bricks, pile of gravel. Labor is cheap by the sweat of your brow in pain. And God demands that this is the case as a result of our human rebellion against him. Work is grim, in pain, to be. The frustration of work. Do you see verse 18? Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Well, I come from a farm and so do some of you. And you know that you Cut the thistles down in the summer every year and they're back again the next year. And you cut them down again and they're back again the next year. A friend of mine in the city in London, when I was speaking on this subject recently, said to me, do you know, for the last four years, we have been putting right a mistake that my boss made four years ago. 
we've just sorted it out. The boss has left. A new man has been appointed. He has made precisely the same mistake again. We've got to start all over again. He said, that has been the story of my working life. (laughs) You spend months, you computer boffins, working on some piece of software. A glitch. It's all lost. Thorns and thistles. And God deliberately demands that it is so, so that we understand we live in a world that is under his judgment because of our human rebellion, the futility of work. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You're going to die. However great you are, whatever you achieve, ultimately, what futility. Let me read to you from Ecclesiastes chapter, <coughs> chapter 2 and verse 18. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. I mean, there's Steve Jobs giving his Stanford graduation ceremony lecture. Where is Steve Jobs today? And which direction is Black Apple going in? Who knows? I remember somebody speaking on that in the city congregation in which we work midweek. Sitting in the front row was a great friend of mine who had built up a family business. He just handed it over to his son. You'll work all your life. You'll hand your business over, and who knows whether the man you hand it over will be wise or a fool. All this is vanity. I looked at him, and he didn't seem to register at all, but the son was looking slightly worried, I think. (laughs) Who knows whether he's wise or a fool. So do you see, because of our human rebellion and God's judgment over this universe, the author of Genesis wants us to understand the tectonic plates of our universe. This is the way our universe is. Under his judgment, he will always spoil our human work so that we're kind of not comfortable here. We'll be frustrated. We'll never achieve our potential. We'll not achieve true satisfaction. And ultimately, our work will be futile. We will die. How are you feeling about work? Two observations. One. Get real about work. Don't be a sentimentalist, you sentimental secularist. Listen to this advertisement I saw on the London Underground. It goes like this. Fast-growing, active, vibrant office seeks able, young, energetic person with vision and insight to order and categorize resources. What were they looking for? A filing clerk. Don't get me wrong, filing clerks, uh, it's good work. All work is good. Fast-growing, active, vibrant office seeks able, young, energetic person with vision and insight to put pieces of paper in a cardboard box. That's what it should have read. Don't be sentimental about work. There is a profound middle-class gullibility about work. You were never intended to find true satisfaction in your work. 
You were never meant to fulfill your potential in your work. And I can't tell you the number of young people who come up to the city and as a result of thinking that somehow in their workplace they're going to find true satisfaction, even though God has, in judgment, cursed the workplace, they move from place to place to place to place to place to place. Three years in one job, three years in another job, three years in another, three years in another job, seeking to find fulfillment, never finding it, moving on, moving on, moving on. They never will. They never will. And ultimately they'll die. And then grow up about work. I can't tell you the number of business people in their 40s who've come to me and said, William, really, I find my work so dull. What shall I do? And I say to them in a loving way, well, as loving as I can, uh, I can muster, uh, welcome to the real world. Do you know most people discover this about work in their third week at work, aged 16 and a half? You've only got another 20 years. You're jolly lucky to have spent the last 20 years in a job that appeared for a short period to give you great fulfillment. And they go away full of the joys of the next 20 years. Work is good. Work is grim. So I thought, William, you said you were going to show us how we find our true potential at work. Well, work should be governed by the gospel. I want us now to see that as Christian men and women now redeemed from God's judgment, but still living in a fallen world, remaining with the world still under his judgment, there is a point to work and there is more to work than work. So 3A, there is a point to work work should be governed by the gospel. There is more to work than work. Work should be governed by the gospel. There's a point to work. Turn, if you would, please, to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. Now, Paul's point in his letter to the Ephesians is that God's great plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth, under the rule of King Jesus. Christ has died. Christ has risen. He is God's anointed king of the whole universe. Christ will come again. And God is in the purpose of calling Christian men and women, men and women, to come under the rule of Jesus, to enjoy his forgiveness and to start living for him. No longer as rebels, now under his rule. And in the church, God has placed his church so that in the church, if you like, you have a display cabinet of people living now under his rule. In fact, in Ephesians, we're told that the mystery of God is put on display in the church, chapter 3, verse 10. And now, as I go out to work, I am a little, if you like, a little advertisement for the work of Christ, a display of the work of Christ, as I seek to live under his rule. And Paul goes to so far as to say that the whole of the unseen powers and authorities of the universe look on at the church and at Christians living for the Lord Jesus in wonder at what the Lord Jesus has done. And towards the end of the letter, 
what Paul does is then he addresses individuals. You, father. You, wife. You, child. You, worker. And that's what's going on in this little passage here. As he says, chapter 6, verse 5, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people please us, but as bond servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Now, do you see here that if we now belong to Christ, we have a new master, we have a new goal, we have a new reward. We have a new master. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. So I go into my office and whether my boss is a beast or brilliant, I'm actually serving the Lord Jesus. And I've got a new goal. And you can see that in verse six, doing the will of God from the heart. So as I work with integrity and purity and I treat other Christians in the office in a loving way that the Lord Jesus would do, you see, I've got a whole new goal and a new reward. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free, whether they pay you a million bucks or 50 bucks. The real reward now is with the Lord Jesus. And so, if you like, in eternity, you're a millionaire as you serve your new master with a new goal and a new reward. May I say this transforms all work. You know, 95% of the world do not do middle-class occupations of the sort that many people here will have been trained to do. They're hoeing turnips. They're planting rice in paddy fields in the midday sun, squatting on their uh, hind, on their legs, as it were, putting in pieces of rice. They're breaking bricks up to make them into gravel. But this transforms everything. My master may be horrific. My master may be wonderful. I'm serving the Lord. And my eye is on pleasing him. And, you know, as I live to please him, all the powers and authorities in the heavenly places are looking in and saying, God has taken this sullen, reluctant, difficult individual and turned them into somebody who's happy to submit to their master and serve them in a way that is appropriate and good under the Lord. When we looked at this as a church family on Sundays at the church I served recently, we had a prayer evening a couple of weeks later. And one or two people get, stood up and gave their testimony about how this had transformed their attitude at work. And I remember one French girl, we have got a lot of French people in our church in London. She came from Ghana, I think, so a black French girl stands up and says it has radically transformed everything. She told us her job. It was pretty mundane. I get up in the morning. I realize that I'm serving Jesus. I come into work, I see all these people that I can love and be honest towards and look after. I realize I'm doing it for the Lord Jesus. And at the end of the month, whether they give me 10 bucks or a thousand bucks, I know I have a glorious reward in eternity. 
a new master, a new goal, a new reward. But there is also more to work than work. Not only is there a new purpose and point to work, work should be governed by the gospel, but there's more to work than work. Last cross-reference, turn to John chapter 4, would you? John chapter 4 and verse 31. Jesus here is speaking to a Samaritan woman. She has responded to him in faith and started to follow him. And she's gone back into her village and told everybody about Jesus. Meanwhile, his disciples are only concerned about one thing. They want to feed their face. That's all they're interested in is food. Take it up at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. And they'd been off in the town. They'd been at Sub, Subway or whatever it is, getting a, or a McDonald's, getting a hamburger or something. They'd come back and say, look, we got food. You must eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples, they're still clueless. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Maybe he picked up a Pret-a-Manger sandwich or something like that, by the way. Jesus said this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, what do they see when they look up? It's four months to harvest, so it's October. Is that your spring? October, is that your spring? September, October? The fields are actually brown. Maybe the odd little green shoot poking through. Do you not say there are four months? Look up, the fields are white. What do they see as they look up? Oh, people are coming from the village, led by the woman, to come and meet Jesus. And so as they look up, and I, I wish I had a, a painting, you know, an old master painting of this. Here are the oldies coming on their zimmers, hurrying out of the village to meet the Lord Jesus. You know, here are the teenagers, they're rushing ahead, trying to show everybody they can run faster. You know, and here are the mums and so forth. And you could, here they all run, look. The fields are white for harvest. I've got food to do that you know nothing about. There's more to work than work. So as you go into your office tomorrow, or to your uni, or your hospital, or your staff room, or the assembly line, there's more to work than work. There's a new point to work as I seek to live for Jesus in a way which pleases him. That godliness comes with me into heaven. And is rewarded in heaven. But there's a new point to it. I'm now an informal missionary. The harvest is white. And I've been placed in this office, this university, this college, studying this particular course, sitting next to these particular individuals, so that I can say to the person who's written on the desk back there, whatever banal and mindless thing they've said, Do your own thing, follow your own voice. There is a living God. He's the King of Kings. He sent His Son to die for you. He loves you. There can be a purpose to life far greater than doing your own thing and following your own voice. There's more to work now, if you're a Christian person, than feeding your face. Just one anecdote as I finish. A number of years ago, I was speaking on fear. I was down in Fleet Street, which is the legal area in London, and there was a young lawyer. It was a lunchtime meeting on a Wednesday. 
and I sat down when I finished speaking on fear next to this young lad. He was a new graduate working as a barrister, learning to be a barrister. I said to him, he wasn't a Christian, what do you fear most? He said, I'm frightened I will not reach my potential. And I thought to myself, you poor enslaved creature. You've been taught you must follow your dream. You must do what you love. You must follow your own voice. But there are so many options. You'll never fulfill your potential until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrender to him. And then you begin to realize that wherever he places you, you don't need to be a snob about work. You can please him with a glorious reward. And there's more to work than work as you seek to make his name known wherever he's placed you. Well, now, I think we'll pray, if we may. May I lead us in prayer? And then I believe there's time for questions, or have I used all the time up, Haran? So that's great. Well, let, let's pray, and then we'll get the questions going. My work is to do the Father's will. The fields are white for harvest. Thank you, our Father, that there is more to work than work, that you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus, to redeem us from the futility, the frustration, and the pain of living in a broken world under your judgment. We pray that you would help us as those knowing your new creation to live in a way that pleases you and to engage in work that lasts for your namesake. Amen. Right, so we'll take questions. I'm delighted to have a bash. Can't promise I'll answer them. And the first one has just come up. If work is grim, is it sinful to love my work? No, you should be so thankful. And, uh, but don't be naive. Don't be sentimental. Don't be like an ostrich with your head in the sand. We live in a broken world. And your work will be painful. And there will be times when you find your work deeply frustrating. Maybe not now, but like many of my professional friends in the city in 15, 20 years' time. And may I say, if you begin to find your work frustrating as a Christian person, the danger is you move to something else. Whereas the true work that God has put you in your workplace to do, to make the Lord Jesus known, requires depth of relationship. And every time you move, you break all the relationships you formed. And so moving work actually can be a profoundly disruptive thing to the Christian witness that the Lord wants you to do. And so by not having a proper biblical understanding of work, you can actually multiply an experience of frustration rather than... Now, is it simple? No, <clears throat> it's not simple to love your work at all. But do remember, at the end of the day, you will die. And even if you're Steve Jobs, you may hand over whatever you've done to a complete idiot. <laughs> Next question. Finish. That's it. Ah, please end. That was the question. I've heard enough. Please stop this man from speaking. Was that the question? There's another one coming. It's behind me.
What if my work achieves good things, feeds the poor, helps the sick? Does it also need to have some component that points people to Jesus? Or is it just doing, or is just doing good enough? Well, I want to say to that, that um, we mustn't confuse categories. And many so-called Bible Christians do. So there's a category, loving my neighbor and godliness. And the things that you've listed there, um, feeding the poor, helping the sick, living a godly life, that's godliness. That's wonderful. There's also a category, gospel work. The word gospel means announcement. That's what the word gospel means. The early Christians took that word gospel. They actually took it both from the Old Testament and from their secular surrounding. And if you'd gone to Rome in the first century, you would have found any number of little milestones that announced Caesar Augustus was on the throne, and they were called gospels. So gospel is the announcement of a regime change. Do you know there was a gospel this morning? Donald Trump. Okay, gospel. That was, I'm so sorry, it was yesterday. Yeah, okay, whenever it was, okay. <laughs> Are you an engineer? No, no, no. Okay, fine. Fair enough. Just, just checking. Just checking. Okay, fine. Okay, but you're absolutely right. Thank you for the help. Thank you for that. Okay, there was a gospel yesterday. Imagine I was the newsreader, the announcer. Okay, this is the six o'clock news. Is that news? Why not? Because I haven't said anything. Nothing's been announced. So you can't be an announcer, a gospel worker, a Christian who has the gospel without speaking. So you can do any amount of godly things, loving your neighbor. That's a wonderful thing to do. And if you're a gospel person, of course, you will because the Lord Jesus now rules your life and you want to be doing good and loving your neighbor. But if you're not actually speaking of King Jesus then don't think that's gospel work. Do you remember there's somebody is reported to have said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Have you ever heard that? It's an appalling nonsense. And the person who they say said it, I can't believe he ever did. And there's certainly no record of it. Because it, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. That's absurd. It's, a, it's completely illogical. You can't preach the gospel without using words. And so, yep, great to do good, absolutely wonderful. That's godliness, but don't confuse it with gospel work. And if God, if you are a Christian, you are a gospel person, and part of being a Christian is to announce the gospel. You can't be a gospel person unless you're in some way announcing the gospel, because the gospel is announcement, if you see what I mean. Okay, sorry about that, going on a bit long. Have you got another question? Finish, it says again. There's another question up here. Jeremiah says Israel is to seek the good of the city. Some prominent preachers rip that verse out of its context and take it to say that we have a command to love and redeem the city and culture for Christ. Is not this our mission as Christians too? Well, I think I've partly answered that. That is a complete mishandling of the verse that you find in Jeremiah. And our dear friend, um, Tim Keller, who's done so many good things on this point, is absolutely wrong. And the problem is that though Tim, I think, realizes that he was mistaken to rip that verse out of its context and make it say something that it doesn't, many people who follow Tim Keller 
in that movement now think they're placed in the city in some way to redeem the city. No, the city never gets redeemed. Think of Sodom, which is the picture Jesus uses for the cities of this world and is the picture that is used for Babylon, Jerusalem, Tyre, Sidon, and every other city under God's judgment. As Abraham looked down on Sodom, as God rained down fire in brimstone, do you think Abraham ever said to himself, I wish I'd redeemed that building? No, you don't redeem cities. You speak the gospel so that individuals turn to the Lord Jesus. That's what the Christian's responsibility is. And I think a lot of people who have followed Tim's most unhelpful teaching at this point have ended up saying, oh, I think we want to develop a church and be the kind of church that the city loves so that everybody's really glad we're here. Again, that runs completely counter to the teaching of Jesus. They will hate you because of me. Men will persecute you because of me. It doesn't mean we should be objectionable. But we don't go about doing good works in order to be loved by the world. No, we seek to love our neighbor and we speak the gospel. And you're never going to redeem Auckland. Get that clear, please. In England, people have started trying to build buildings with a kind of resurrection ethic and redeem the structures of the city by doing social work. And you think you've com- they've completely misunderstood the mission of Christ. Okay, thank you. It's a good question. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many things that Tim has said that are good on that point and a couple of others, particularly on work, his teaching is most unhelpful. So, Yes. Oh, there's another one up here. What if you're unable to work due to long-term illness? How does one work to honor God? Well, I think quite a lot of what we talked about under the third point is, is open to anybody whether they have long-term illness or not. And to a person with long-term illness, there are all sorts of ways in which you can engage in the work of Christ to make his name known, not least through prayer. But the people who I know who have long-term illness and are unable to go out to work frequently will be able to do some other sort of work, often in a voluntary capacity, where maybe they can, are, are able to do perhaps two hours work a day or something like that. They've got the energy to do that. And then in the way that they conduct themselves within their family and in their limited capacity, they can actually do a huge amount of good for the Lord Jesus. Finish? Oh, there's one more. I'll just keep talking, shall I? Um, You've heard some people say, I suspect, in books on work, that somehow I will be able to take the work that I do with me into the new creation. Again, there is no indication of that in the New Testament at all. And the most persuasive writer on this particular issue uses a parable by J.R.R. Tolkien that was commissioned by the Catholic Herald that teaches, when you read it, do go and read it, purgatory and salvation by works. And he uses that parable. Tolkien's parable talks about an individual taking something and finding it in purgatory. 
That's what the parable actually says. And the author uses that parable to suggest that as I work on a painting or a sonata or something like that in this creation, I will find that particular work perfected in the new creation. And because he can't find any verses in the New Testament that teach that, he goes to 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And he says, quote, though Paul is referring to our Christian ministry, Tolkien's parable enables us to apply that to all of work. Now, do you see what's happened there? This respected across the world, so-called evangelical teacher at this point, you have to be discerning if you're a Christian, is gone right off course. He's taking a parable that was commissioned by the Catholic Herald that teaches purgatory and good works, taking it to, uh, uh, unable to find what he wants to say, taking it to a verse of Paul's and therefore and then reinterpreting Paul's writing through this Catholic parable about something completely different. And at that stage, I'm afraid he has ceased to operate within the sphere of faithful, biblical, evangelical. Now, at that point, some of you know who I'm talking about. At other points, he's, uh, he's absolutely terrific. And if ever I do something like that, please come and see me, won't you? In fact, send the lads around. If I'm not called to do any particular job and all work is good, does this mean I can choose any job I want? Yes. How then should students decide to to what course to study at uni? (laughs) Well, I think, I do think we need to think much more carefully about given the person I am, how will I maximize best the gifts God has given me for the advance of the Christian gospel? And if I do one particular course, is that so going to limit my abilities, both in my life beyond and while I'm at uni? So we do need to think with our gospel head on, how is what I do going to serve Christ best? Rather than, oh, I think I'm going to be a brilliant concert pianist and therefore I'm going to plow absolutely everything into being a concert pianist. Oh, and maybe I'll do a bit of Christian work on the side. Do you see? Rather, I need to be thinking, how can, given the person who I am, I be most service to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of heaven and earth, and allow that to govern the choices I make in my workplace, in, 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 in uh, what I plan to do? There's a lot to talk about. We're, are we going to go to supper afterwards? So I'll be there at dinner afterwards and would love to talk further. And if you have individual questions, I'd love to take them. Thanks so much.